I love being a pastor. I've been a pastor, whether senior pastor or not, uh, for about 40 years uh, I've been doing this and I do love um, pastoring. The, the, my favorite pro- part of it is probably um, teaching the Bible and preaching the gospel. Like that's my favorite thing. I, I joke around with the team here that that's the part I do for free because it really is the funnest part. I feel like I, it's a get to. Um, and really I have a blast. I, I hear of pastors that burn out and I feel bad because I know there's guys that have congregations that are maybe difficult or challenging situations, but I just feel like um, it's the funnest job in the world. And I, I um, uh, but you say, well, Brett, what do you do rest of the week, man? You only do the five weekend services and the Wednesday night and um, Prophecy Update and um, Ironworks and stuff. What else do you do? Well, we do have a big team here of 130 staff members and uh, a giant church. And it's a lot of things going on. And that's a little more on the work side, but I have such a wonderful team. They make it do, work out really well. And it's been awesome to see uh, the Lord just grow in that group, volunteers that make everything go. It's, it, to me, it's just really a blast and a huge blessing. Um, if I had to say what my least favorite thing is uh, uh, being a pastor, and I've had this happen for the last 40 years, is stupid questions. <laughs> now, some of you are uncomfortable with that. Uh, I can't believe my pastor just said that there's, didn't your teacher, Pastor Brett, when you were in kindergarten teacher, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Well, I beg to differ with my kindergarten teacher. There are stupid questions, and can I tell you what they are? They're um, ill-conceived and wrong-motivated questions that are usually like gotcha questions. Like somebody's intent is not to ask a question or to hear what you have to say as much as they wanna trip you up or figure out uh, something to mess with you. That's the stupid question that I don't like. Um, you always know when somebody walks up and they, they think they got you, oh, you're a pastor. Like you go to the filling station and gets your gas and somebody, oh, you're a pastor. Um, hey, I have a question. And it's like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> Did Adam have a belly button? <laughs> or who was Cain's wife? Or, or questions that they think they got you like, you know, can God make a rock so big that he cannot lift it? And you're like, oh no, they got me. I might as well throw my Bible away. And I guess that's, uh, no, that's dumb. That's a false dilemma. Anybody that knows logic, it's like, yeah, that, that question's false, even in the premise of its asking. Um, usually when somebody asks a question like that, or sometimes even good questions, that are meant to sort of trip you up, I still think those are bad questions. The reason I talk about this is because um, this is what happens to Jesus quite a bit. Um, One thing you'll note, when Jesus is asked a question from anybody that's even halfway sincere, he always gives a very considerate and important and good answer. But when Jesus gets a question from an ill-advised person who's thinking they're gonna trip Jesus up with his words or trick him into saying something stupid, Not only does Jesus not answer their question, sometimes he gives an answer that is a little shocking. And you might even be uh, misguided if you don't understand what Jesus is doing. Um, And this is one of those situations. We have a lawyer who comes up and asks Jesus a a very uh, tricky question to try to make him say something that would make the Jews really mad. You see this guy being a lawyer, let me explain this in this story. He's not like a Perry Mason or Matlock or some lawyer like that. He's, an, he's a lawyer of the law of the Jewish um, you know, Hebrew Bible, uh, the law of Moses. And so really you might call, some of the titles we're gonna talk about today are, are a little hard to talk about because over time the meanings change. But this lawyer in the Greek New Testament, he is a guy who's really, we would call him a theologian. He knew the Hebrew scriptures as much as anybody 
He was of the law, studied the law of Moses. And so the Torah was his thing. It was his expertise, area of expertise. That's the guy that's coming to ask Jesus this question. We pick it up here in chapter 10, verse 25. Let's take a look. It says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted. Some of your translations say tested. Tempting, testing, same idea, wrong heart. Tempted him saying, master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you gotta say, this, this is a good question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna admit, that is a great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a great question. It's just that we already know this guy's off because he's saying it, trying to tempt or test Jesus. The idea is to make Jesus say the wrong thing. That's the idea. I love this question, by the way. I, I think one of my favorite memories early in ministry, I, I've mentioned I've been pastoring for 40 years. Um, back before I was here, I was at another large church and I used to take and do pastor on duty. You'd be the pastor in the office, just there if anybody comes in. I remember this one afternoon, this guy comes stumbling probably after work and you know, he was, he was kind of this big burly, you know, bearded, you know, muscled, you know, probably six, five, you know, 300 pounds, just this huge guy and he's wearing Carhartt and his Carhartt pants were all stained and, and had little burn holes. And I knew what that was. I, oh, this guy's a welder. Um, and sure enough, he was a welder and you know, you could just kind of smell the welding on him. It was like, to me, it's like, they should make that a cologne. It's a great smell. Um, I was like, I like this dude already, you know, cause he just kind of, uh, and he comes in and says, I want to talk to a pastor. And I'm like, okay, that's me. Come on in. So we, we sat down and I was thinking, man, what's this guy gonna ask or talk about? And as we sat down in the little office there, he just looked at me for a second and then he just burst into tears, bawling like a baby. It was a shock. It was the la I thought he was going to punch me in the face or, you know, you know, talk about something else, but he just burst into tears. And then he said this, he said, what do I need to do to become a Christian? That, that's what he asked. What do I need to do? Now, th this is an answer I'm happy to give. Uh, what do you need to do to become a Christian? And I, I was able to explain, repent of your sins and confess Jesus, that you believe that he died on the cross for your sins, rose from the grave, and you will be saved by God's grace if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart. And I showed him Romans 10, verse nine and 10. And he prayed a prayer of confession of faith. Um, it was such a great thing. I think what brought him to that point, by the way, is his wife was a believer and they married unequally yoked. Not always a good idea, never a good idea, by the way. Um, but she was, I, I got the perception that she was a faithful, amazing Christian lady. And he was kind of this guy who'd been fighting against that and losing the battle. And his life was unraveling right before his very eyes. And he was making some really dumb decisions and um, even hurt his wife and stuff like that with, with his actions and stuff. And, um, and it, it, was, it was just, he was falling apart. He just knew he was broken. Um, that's a good place, by the way, when you get to total brokenness. And that's what this guy was. Well, let me just give you the end of that story. Um, that was like 35 years ago. Um, today, to this day, he's a friend of mine. He's a guy who walks with the Lord, loves Jesus, still married amazingly and have a, has a wonderful family. Like it's cool to see how the Lord redeemed such a broken situation. That's what God does, by the way. He's in that business. And that question of what must I do to inherit eternal life is easily answered if you know your Bible. And it's also easily answered unless you're trying to trick God. Can I just say tricking God is not a good plan? That's what this guy, the lawyer said, I'm gonna trick Jesus and I'm gonna tempt him to say something stupid. So he comes up, you know, teacher, master, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Do you think Jesus knew that this guy was ill-intentioned? 
Do you think Jesus was perceiving? We, we, we read all the time in the gospel and Jesus knew what he was thinking. Um, I'm pretty sure he knew this guy. And I think the answer Jesus gives has very much to do with this guy's trickery and what have you. So Jesus in verse 26, he goes on and says to him, what is written in the law? How readest thou? You might say out of the King James here, he's saying, you're an expert on the law. You're a lawyer of the law. What does the law say? And, and, and not just, you know, what, what do you read about this? But he even asks, how? How do you read this? Do you ever uh, consider how you read the Bible? Um, we often talk about if you read the Bible or when you read the Bible, <clears throat> but do you ever think about how you read the Bible? Because um, there's a difference. Some people read the Bible with their mind already made up and they read it thinking, well, we'll see what the Bible has to say, but if I don't like it, whoosh, I'm gonna rip that page out and throw it out. That's the way a lot of people read the Bible and it's a horrible way to read the Bible with your mind already made up. Other people read the Bible and they let it make up their mind. In other words, whatever the Bible says, that's what they're gonna say. Well, I'm gonna choose to believe and follow the word of God because some of us, we believe this word is living and powered, uh, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, inspired, God-breathed word of God. And we, we believe every word of it. And even if it's stuff I don't like, I'm gonna choose to believe it. That's the way I approach the Bible. Um, you know, there, I have to admit, there's things in the Bible that I, I'd be tempted to go, Whoosh, I don't like that. But I've realized in my life thus far, the things that I've thought were not great in the Bible, the longer I live, the more I realize, wow, God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are wiser than our thoughts. The Bible has never once let me down. It is truth, the scriptures. So Jesus says, you're an expert on the scriptures, the law. Um, how, how, he says, do you read, how do you read it? Um, well, he's gonna answer. As an expert on the law, he's about to answer the question. And he's gonna answer with something called the great Shema. Huh, Brett, you just made that up. Are you just making stuff up now? The great Shema? No, the great Shema is actually the, the, from the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament law. And it's something that the Jews to this day recite daily. It's, um, and we'll see this guy. It's like, this is interesting because even a kindergartner probably in this day could have answered this question with this answer because from the littlest of ages, they would memorize the great Shema. Let's see what this guy says, verse 27. And he answering said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus said unto him, thou hast answered right. This do and thou shalt live. Now, suddenly we kind of have a bit of a problem because the guy asked, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, if you're a Bible student, you know what Jesus says here is true. But it's also, we also know something that's, this, that's this kind of important to this conversation. We also know it's impossible. Um, does anybody that knows their Bible, does anybody really seek after God? Anybody? No. Brett, I do. Nope, you don't, according to the Bible. Nobody truly with a perfect heart seeks after God. That's what Romans says. Oh, you might do it, but you still have wrong intentions and you're even built into that, there's sin. We're just, we're just sin nature. We're just uh, encumbered by sin. Uh, there's no one righteous, not even one. You can claim to love everyone, but you don't. And see, this is the problem. Jesus said, yeah, just do that. 
Do what you said, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, and, and you'll live, that's it, just do that. But the implication is perfectly. Um, now, <laughs> this is kind of reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount. People say, oh, I just live by the Sermon on the Mount. Well, no, you don't. I'll just tell you right now, you do not. Um, see, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount wasn't, okay, we better do this or else you're gonna go to hell. Do you remember what Jesus said? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisee, you will no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. What would the Jews of that day have thought when Jesus said that? They would have said, well, then who's going to heaven? And then Jesus upped the stakes. You've heard of it said of old time, the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you even have anger in your heart toward your brother, you're guilty of murder. And if you, you've heard it's been said of old time, if you, you know, commit adultery. Um, but I say unto you, if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. And all the men would have said, oh man, I'm going to hell. That's what they were thinking. You see, and, and Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount and it just ups the stakes so high. It, it, it takes it even more radical than the Old Testament law, which the Jews had already failed so suddenly Jesus is saying the Sermon on the Mount and you think, man, who's gonna be saved? Um, now, what's even more interesting, Jesus doesn't give the answer to the problem that he mentions on the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, unless you are really basically breaking off all your sin and living a perfect life, you will no wise enter the kingdom of heaven. Question, those of you that were here in our study, just to see who's listening. Does anybody remember? Jesus doesn't give the answer to that dilemma on the Sermon on the Mount. Does anybody remember why? because Jesus is the answer to the Sermon on the Mount. We all fall short, no one is righteous. No one can love God perfectly with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and their neighbor as their self. And so we realize, man, the only way a person is gonna be saved is by God's grace and by Jesus dying on the cross for our failures in our inabilities to love God perfectly, to love our neighbor as ourself. We have to lean heavily on the Lord. So this great Shema is something the Jews to this day recite. It comes from Deuteronomy, by the way, chapter six, verses four through nine is basically the whole great Shema, but this is the first part. Hear, O Israel. The, the word Shema in Hebrew is, is um, here. It means here. So they start out this saying and they say it daily, you know, uh, Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel, the Lord uh, our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. This is the, the first part of this. And, and, and this is the, the part that this lawyer recites. And Jesus says, you got it right. Now, I wonder if when Jesus says this, um, if Jesus says, yeah, do that and you'll live. I wonder if Jesus said that in a way where the guys suddenly, in fact, I'm pretty sure, Jesus says it in a way where the guy's like, yeah, but um, in fact, I wonder, do you wonder if this lawyer, remember, he's a theologian. I, I, I'm, I'm appreciative of theologians who do the heavy lifting and Bible understanding and of theology. But also, if you're not careful, I've noticed theologians aren't really huggable. Have you ever noticed that? They're not the nicest people sometimes in the world. Um, I, I, I appreciate theologians, but you know, I've heard somebody says, um, many theologians are like porcupines, many fine points but not easy to hug. Um, I wonder if this guy was like that and could just think for a second, maybe this guy was one of the most unloving kind of people out there. Do you know the kind of person I'm talking about? Just not loving God, not loving his neighbor. And he was guilty and he knew he was guilty. So could Jesus be hitting him right where it hurts? Oh yeah, 
You want to have an eternal life? No problem. Just do that. Almost, you could hear, and good luck with that. <laughs> Let's see how you do. I wonder if this guy, now the reason I suspect that is not just some Brett guessing on uh, how this guy must have felt or thought, but it's more about what comes next. Uh, check it out, verse 29. But he, the lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let, let's get it out of mathematical terms and let's get more to esoteric philosophical terms. Who really is my neighbor? You, you say, you know, you just do that, but, but you know, he's not letting this go. This guy is wanting to trick Jesus, to trap Jesus. So he goes on, well, well, who really is my neighbor? Now, Jesus is gonna answer that question. Um, and uh, spoiler alert, Jesus is gonna say, anybody with a pulse on the planet is your neighbor. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny, uh, if you look it up in Webster's, Webster's Dictionary says, you know, people that live next to you is your neighbor. That's definition number one. But definition number two is, um, all of humanity is your neighbor. Um, that's definition number two. And that's basically what Jesus is saying. Um, I think in some ways it's almost easier to love all of humanity than your next door neighbor. Isn't it funny how next door neighbors can be challenging sometimes? I love the story of the lady who came home and her, her, her cat was walking up to the front porch as cats do when they get their prey. And in the cat's mouth, there was a rabbit, a white rabbit that was all dirty and you know, messed up and, and um, the cat came and dropped it on the French porch and the lady was horrified. The reason why she knew that was Bonnie's bunny. Their next door neighbor, this little kid, this little girl Bonnie had a bunny in a hutch and she knew that's, that's Bonnie's bunny. Oh no, our cat murdered the bunny. And she thought, what am I gonna do? So she grabbed the bunny and put it in the kitchen sink and soaked it all up and got, got a hair dryer, get it, hair dryer. And sorry, I know it's, it's fourth service. Uh, and blue dry, blue dry this bunny, you know, and, and got it all fluffy and clean and it looked great. And so then at nighttime, she snuck out and go, went to the neighbor's rabbit hutch and put the little bunny back in there and made it kind of look like it had a heart attack or whatever, to, <laughs> sort of make it look good and everything and, and, and put it there. Well, the next morning, it wasn't just Bonnie out looking in her hutch, but the whole neighborhood had gathered. It was kind of a crowd. She thought, oh man, what's going on? And she thought, I'll just go down and say, hey, what's going on? You know, and act all, you know, innocent. And she came down, what's going on? And said, oh, it's amazing. They said, Bonnie's bunny died yesterday. And we buried it over there. <laughs> and this morning it's all clean and, and it's back in here. It's like, uh, <laughs> talk about Easter bunny. That's all a whole new thing. Um, you know, weird, weird, neighbors are weird. Weird things happen with neighbors. Um, so whether you're talking about your next door neighbor or, you know, humanity, it's, it doesn't matter. Anyone with a pulse, Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the Bible. This is what the scriptures say. So this guy is trying to say, well, who really is my neighbor? And so then Jesus says, you want to know? I'll give you the answer. And he answers with a parable, a story that's quite famous. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Let's take a look as we continue. Jesus answering, verse 30, said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. By the way, um, this, this, this road, just so you kind of get the gist of the story, this is a famous road. I'm trying to think of a road uh, that's kind of treacherous. Uh, we don't really have that much here. Uh, um, you know, it'd be like if I told you, hey, I'd like you to take a trip and, and deliver something to Eugene. Or if I said, no, and let's say it's January and I think I need you to bring something to Eugene. Or I say, no, I, I need you to take something over to Bend. 
Is there any difference in the traveling from Eugene or to Bend? If you're going to Bend, you have to have your tire chains, especially in January. You probably should be ready for some weather and some a little more difficult driving. Uh, it, but a hundred times over, the Jerusalem to Jericho road was known famously. In fact, it was Jerome in 400 AD that called the road the ascent of the red or the ascent of the blood. And the reason he explained the name was given before the times of Christ. It was called the ascent of blood because bandits repeatedly shed blood all along that roadway. Um, uh, you gotta understand the, um, the altitude from Jericho uh, Jericho sits at 846 feet below sea level. It's one of the lowest places on earth, Jericho, right next to the Dead Sea. But then you, you go that 18 mile journey from Jericho up to Jerusalem, you, you ascend 3,320 feet uh, in, in, uh, in height. That's a, a steep hill. But you wind through these rocky uh, hills and these marauders and thieves would hide behind rocks. So most people, if you're going up to Jerusalem, you better be in a big team and have some security with you. But if you were going by yourself, you're putting your life in your own hands. Good luck with that. So you gotta understand when, when Jesus says the Jerusalem to Jericho road, you're like, oh man, that's a scary road. That's part of the story. So he says, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. I don't know why that cracks me up. The Bible calls him half dead. What does half dead mean? Uh, close to death, I guess. Like he's on the edge of death. That's, uh, I don't think he's half dead. Not completely dead, mostly dead, but like, it's, it's just funny. That'll come into play here in a second because uh, that's important, this half dead guy. Um, so he's laying there bloody naked. He, they stripped him of his clothes and he's just beat up and half dead. Verse 31. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at that place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. Okay, let's get into this. So let's, let's start with some of these characters that we've got here. Um, first notice this, this first guy that comes by as a priest. Remember I told you the lawyer wasn't really like a lawyer, but he's more of a theologian. In the same way, in the parable, the priest is not really a priest. I'll tell you why, because by the first century, the time of Jesus, the priesthood had become so corrupt, they could care less about the ministry, about serving the Lord or representing God to the people and the people to God. And uh, they, they couldn't give a rip about that. And so they said, yeah, whatever. And what, what were they? More than religious leaders, does anybody know what they actually really were? Anybody? Politicians. Um, we know that from so many references and sightings of history, but one of the big ones is in the Bible. Caiaphas, the high priest, was a wacko politician, uh, totally lost, um, didn't even really know God at all, and killed the Messiah. Like Caiaphas was so off, and, and really the priesthood was off. There's another group of people um, that were actually um, legitimately serving in the temple, but they were still kind of corrupted and off, but at least they were ministering as religionists. We'll talk about that in a second. But the priests were not that, they were politicians. They were supposed to be ministering when they were being politicians. Well, Brad, I think you do that. You're one of those pastors that talk about political things. Um, can I just say, I'm always tired of people putting me in categories or saying, Brett, you're this or you're that. And I'm sure you guys are too. Um, I'm uncomfortable with just about any title you try to superimpose on me. Even stuff that you might think is good. Brett, you're an evangelical Christian. I'm not comfortable with that title because guess what? 
I know some evangelical Christians I really like and I agree with, but I also know some evangelical Christians I don't relate to at all, and I'm not even, I'm not even sure they're even saved, but they call themselves evangelical Christians. Um, so you're gonna have to be careful with these titles. Brett, you're a Calvinist. I've been called a Calvinist. Now, the hardcore hyper-Calvinists say, you're not a Calvinist, you're, you're an Arminianist. Nope, I'm not a Calvinist and I'm not an Arminianist. Well, you gotta choose one or the other. Those are man-made words that aren't in the Bible. And I reject both. I think both fall short in describing what the Bible teaches. And it's funny, uh, you know, it's, it's not even an essential doctrine of the Christian faith, but man, those are fighting words. Um, some people will hate you. If you're not a hardcore five-point hyper-Calvinist, then they, they'll call you. You know, there was a podcast recently of me, somebody did on Athey Creek and they put my teaching snippets in black and white. You know, I'm, I'm surprised there weren't lightning bolts coming while I was talking. Um, you know, good edit though, good edit. You know, made me look really, and, um, and, then, and then they bashed away at how, you know, heresy and all this stuff. They were hyper-Calvinists, hyper-Calvinists. Um, and by the way, I would just give advice to some of you hyper-Calvinists. Um, remember, Jesus said, they'll know you're my disciples, not by your Calvinism. They'll know you're my disciples by what? Your love one for another. And the hyper-Calvinists, that's one of the things they tend to lack very much. Sad to say, if you're wondering. And by the way, I always like to say, you know, because there's these podcasts, Brett's a heretic because he, he's not, not a Calvinist. Um, well, so was a lot of people. J. Vernon McGee, they'd put in that same category. And Billy Graham, Chuck Smith. Like there's a lot of good Bible teachers that have come and gone over the years that were exactly the same. Don't, don't be careful when people try to put you in a category. Calvinism, Arminianism, you're, you're, or how about this one? This one gets more to our point. Christian nationalist. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Does anybody know? Is a Christian nationalist a good thing or a bad thing? The answer that I'd give you is, I haven't the foggiest idea. <laughs> That's just the name people bring up and talk about. Are you a Christian nationalist? Um, by the way, I think there is an ugly, wrong-minded Christian nationalism that can get everybody into a lot of trouble. If you're saying Christian nationalist is like basically saying, I was born an American, so that makes me a Christian. God bless America. And by the way, if you ain't a Christian, you ain't American. There's some Christian nationalists that talk like that, and I think that's totally wacko. I, I don't agree with that worldview. What makes you a Christian? Is it that you were born in America? Well, that's total nonsense. Um, there's a lot of Christians around the world. Some are Americans, some are Chinese, some are Russian, some are Saudi Arabian, some are Iranian. Like there's an amazing plethora of Christians around the world. And, and it's such a wrong-minded worldview to try to associate your faith with your country that you were born in. Um, let me talk about the bad sides of Christian nationalism for, you know, if you think you can legislate Christianity, if you can be a politician and say, we're gonna bring in Christianity, make that the rule of the land and make everybody be Christians. Well, do you know in history, we've tried that a bunch of times. Probably the biggest attempt was back when Constantine apparently accepted Jesus on the cross, seeing the cross on the bridge and the whole thing. And Constantine, you know, after three centuries of Roman persecution of Christians, you know, horrible, 10 waves. These 10 emperors crushed Christianity brutally. Suddenly Constantine says, no, Christianity's cool. A hundred years after that, the Roman empire after Constantine made Christianity the legal religion of the, of the Roman empire. You had to be a Christian. Well, what if you were a pagan priest? Doesn't matter, you're switching um, or we'll kill you. Does that sound like the love of Christ? Is that the way to do it? To make everybody become Christians? 
Um, sometimes I think that's a problem when we try to legislate morality. Um, I think that that can almost be a wrong Christian nationalist kind of worldview. We need to legislate morality. Now, I'm glad that we legislate some morality, for example, murder. Fortunately, we all generally still agree that's bad. Murder is bad. But we tried things like alcohol. Let's make the prohibition. How'd that work out for us? Um, see, unless you have a heart change, you're still gonna be a sinner. And the biggest issue as a Christian is not legislation, but it's regeneration, to, to repent of your sins and accept Christ as your savior. Um, so some Christian nationalists cite Psalm 33, 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And they sort of believe that's the United States of America. And by the way, a lot of the people that say that are also replacement theology people. The Jews used to be God's people, but America, the church in America is now the replacement, we're God's people. Um, I can see you trying to make that argument maybe 50 years ago or 100 years ago, maybe. Um, but today, I'm pretty sure you can't make, we're not God's people. America, we're, we're some of the worst pagan, horrible sinning people on the planet. America produces more pornography than any other country in the world by far, and the whole world sees it that way. We're, we're producing the most filthy, horrifyingly evil stuff. Our country does that. Um, I remember when Obama said, we're no longer a Christian nation. And I took offense to that when he said, that. I was like, we're, we, yes, we are. Because I know our foundings. I know our godly heritage. I know some of the, the stories. I've read the journals of some of our founding fathers of our country. And, and it's, there's some beautiful things there. Um, but when he said that, I, I, I was sort of like, oh, but I had to admit, we're kind of not. And, and I think the people that think we're still a Christian country don't really understand what Christianity really is. Because true Christian repents of their sin, turns to Jesus and follows God's word. That's what a, a Christian does. How are we doing as a country? We might be worse than most other countries at this point, maybe the worst. It's sad to see how our country has spiraled out of control. So there are some dangerous Christian nationalist views. Let me talk about the, the, the reasons why people call me a Christian nationalist though. Because I, I, I'm a patriot, I love this country. I'm thankful to have been born here. Um, does that make me a Christian nationalist? I also think Christians should be involved in politics. Do I think churches should, should be involved in politics? No, but when I talk about abortion and Israel and stuff like that, I'm not talking politics, I'm talking Bible. I'm a Bible teacher, I'm gonna teach what the Bible says. Uh, so when I talked about Israel a few weeks ago, I got a bunch of bad press, you know, people saying, you're just into politics, Brett you know, talking about politics. No, I'm just into talking about the Bible. The Bible has a lot to say about how the nations treat Israel and especially in the end times, how we think about Israel is way up on the important list in the Bible. Um, abortion is an issue that's biblical. God cares about the unborn child and the Bible's really clear on that one. That's why pastors, if you claim to be a pastor and a Bible teacher and you refuse to talk about abortion, you're not really a Bible teacher because you're only picking the parts of the Bible that you're comfortable with. Um, I, I think that's a bummer. And well, Brad, I don't wanna be accused of being a Christian nationalist into politics. Um, forget what people are saying about you. That's, that's what we all, whether you're a pastor or a parishioner, 
You gotta forget what people are labeling you. They're gonna always label you and say stuff. Um, I'm pro-religious liberty. I'm thankful for being born in America. Um, I'm grateful to our founding fathers. I love our founding documents, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights. Um, I, I think they were very wise in how they wrote those things. Um, and, and also I recognize the positive influence Christianity had on early principles of American life. Um, I, I believe all that, I do. And I appreciate that. So I'm a patriot. But see, just because of those things, some people are like, well, you're just a Christian nationalist. Time Magazine just did an article recently why Christian nationalism is the greatest threat to America right now. There's some people that are believing that. And there's some churches that are actually talking about that. Um, I believe it depends on what kind of Christian nationalism you're talking about. Don't let people label you. Don't just get sucked in when people say, you're a Christian nationalist. Don't, well, I, I guess I am. No, just say, you don't know what you're talking about or what, you know, you're gonna have to define to me what a Christian nationalist is because there's a huge spectrum of what that means. Brett, why are you talking about this? Well, that's what this priest was. He literally was more into politics than actually anything about God at all. And, and so this is important because Jesus is gonna use him a good, as a good example of what not to do. What did the priest do? We read, he, when he saw the poor, naked, bleeding, half-dead guy, he, he goes and goes out of his way and passed by on the other side, not helping him. Question, do you think politics is helping our homeless? Are they doing a good job with our drug addiction? Are we helping our immigra immigrants that are coming in? Are we doing really helpful things to them? Do you hear just this leak? There's, there's immigrants by the tens of thousands that are leaving the United States now because, because they're saying it's not what we thought it was gonna be. Especially the ones that we dropped off, you know, in Chicago and New York, they're all, they're all leaving now saying, this is worse than where we were. That's actually happening. That's, that was made news last week. Um, are we doing a good job as politicians handling the problems of people? The answer is no. And I think this is a good example of that problem. Jesus nails it here. This priest who was a politician didn't have any help. Well, Brett, that's easy for you to say, what is the church doing for the homeless and for the hurting and the immigrants and all that stuff? Well, that brings us to the second guy that Jesus brings up, the Levite, the Levite. See, this is the guy who actually is a religionist in the first century. Yeah, if you know the Old Testament, it was the priests that were supposed to be sort of the sons of Aaron and sort of large and in charge. And the Levites were supposed to serve the priests and do the work of the daily ministry in the temple or the tabernacle. By the first century, the priests were politicians, but the Levites, they were famous for being sort of the, the uh, ministers in the temple. They were religious leaders. They were supposed to be service oriented, um, you know, caring for the people, uh, even the poor. That was part of the Levites' job. And, um, and this is kind of interesting because that begs the question, you know, how are religionists doing caring for the poor? We'll talk about that in a second. But this guy, the religious guy, he does the same thing. The Levite, verse 32, goes as, as far out of his way to go around this poor half-dead guy um, and doesn't want anything to do with him. I bet in his little religionist mind, he was you know, thinking of Numbers 19.11, if, uh, if you touch any dead body, you'll be unclean for seven days. I don't wanna do that. He looks half dead to me, so I'm not gonna touch him. And I'm out of here, pure, and he could care less. God forbid that churches and Christians, the, today's religionists, if you could say that, um, we should not 
be you know, afraid to get our hands dirty and help people that are hurting. Well, yeah, bro, why doesn't AC Creek do more? We'll talk about that in a second. Um, so uh, on to our next guy. The next guy is verse 33, um, and it's the Samaritan. Let's see, verse 33, it says, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. Now, the word Samaritan doesn't do much for us. Oh, Samaritan. And we, we actually associate a Samaritans with good things. Why? Because you got good Samaritan hospital and good Sam club, if you're old enough to remember that, with your RVs. And you got good Samaritan, you know, Samaritan's purse. Like, uh, so Samaritan's a good thing, right? Well, we lose the meaning. Do you realize that when you use the, uh, the word Samaritan in Jesus today, it was like using, it was the S word of the day. Brad, I don't believe you. No, no, trust me. The Jews hated the Samaritans. And one of the biggest insults you could say to a Jew is to call them a Samaritan. You're a Samaritan, even though they were a Jew. Um, Brad, I don't know about that. You're making stuff up. Nope. Do you remember John chapter eight, verse 48? The Jews were trying to just drill Jesus and insult him is the best way they knew how. And in John chapter eight, verse 48, then answered the Jews and said unto him, say we not well that thou art a Samaritan. That's what they said to Jesus. You're a Samaritan and you have a devil. Like this is what they were trying to say to Jesus. You're a Samaritan. That's the most insulting thing you could say to a person in those days. Why? The Jews hated the Samaritans. Why did they hate the Samaritans? Well, mostly it was because of racism. Uh, it was an ugly bit of racism. Uh, the, the Samaritans hated the Jews and the Jews hated the Samaritans. Who were the Samaritans? Well, in 721 BC, the 10 Northern tribes of Israel, they would become very pagan. They left the Lord years earlier. Um, and the Lord says, I'm not gonna protect you because you're on your own. And they're like, yeah, whatever. And that was the 10 Northern tribes. Well, the Assyrian army came down conquered, crushed the Northern 10 tribes, put hooks in their noses and chained them together and, and dragged them up to, uh, to Assyria to be slaves or to do whatever they wanted with them. Now here's where history gets a little fuzzy. What happened to the Jews of that area of the Northern 10 tribes? Some people call them the lost tribes. Um, they're not lost because some of those tribes show up later in history and they're kind of regrouped a little bit. Um, but where did some of these people go? Well, you know, we can talk about how some of them were killed, some of them were slaves, some of them were assimilated into Assyrian, uh, you know, lifestyle. Um, so they were sort of like, um, they'd get intermarried with other Assyrians and Jews were marrying. And after centuries of this, um, there was a new group of people that actually came back from that uh, conflict, the Assyrian war against Israel. Um, years later, hundreds of years later, they came back to a, a region and moved into the Northern part of Israel. Um, and we call that place Samaria. What area? Some area? Some area, yeah, some area. Now, do you remember when Jesus said, hey, you guys, we need to go through Samaria. And the disciples were like, we need to go through where? Samaria, and why do, see the Jews would go out of their way to go around Samaria. They didn't want to go through Samaria. That's why the Samaritan woman at the well, when Jesus went up and talked to her, she said, how is it that you being a Jew are talking to me, a woman of Samaria? Like Jesus was breaking all the rules when he talked to the woman of the well at Samaria. Because they hated the Samaritans. And it was like a cuss word to them. You're a Samaritan, they said, and you have a devil. That's what they said to Jesus. Now, the reason I go into all that is because this kind of cracks me up. The good guy in the story um, that Jesus is presenting in this parable is the worst thing they could think of. 
the Jews hearing this parable, including this lawyer, the attorney of the Hebrew Old Testament, Jesus says, okay, the next guy's coming is a Samaritan. And they're, oh, he's gonna be horrible. He's gonna probably kick the poor guy and make sure he's completely dead. Not just half dead, but dead, dead. That's what the Samaritan, because they're horrible. Like you, you have to understand, there's already a preconceived disposition about Samaritans that the Jews hated this guy already. And so when Jesus says the rest of it, it blows them out of the water. Check it out. Verse 33, but the certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took two pence, around 50 bucks, and gave them to take the, uh, to, to the host and said to him, take care of him. And whatsoever thou spendest more, if, if it goes over the 50 bucks I just gave you, um, when I come again, I will repay thee. And then Jesus asked this guy, the lawyer, verse 36, which now of these three thinkest thou was the neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? Now, you and I kind of say, wow, this is a no duh. But it's kind of funny because he has to answer and he's going to have to say, probably reluctantly, um, the Samaritan guy because he did it right. But he doesn't say Samaritan. Notice how this guy answers. Which one is the one? And the verse 30, 37, and the lawyer, he said, he that showed mercy on him, then said Jesus unto him, go and do thou likewise. Now this is where Jesus is making it even more pointed for this lawyer because he's basically, go, go do what the Samaritan did. This lawyer would have hated that idea. Um, especially trying to trap Jesus with his words. He's putting the Samaritan in this good light. And Jesus says, yeah, do with the guy that showed mercy who happened to be a Samaritan. Um, this this kind of cracks me up. Now, of course, this story, there's so many interpretations and sermons you'll hear about this. Sermon number one, you'll hear, okay, don't be the priest, don't be the Levite, be the Samaritan. That's kind of 101 level and it's so important. And I agree with that. It's true. Be like the Samaritan. But there might be a deeper level here if you're a Bible student and if you really uh, think about it. Um, in these parables, did Jesus ever show up in his own parables? Like for example, when he gave the parable of the sower of the seed, uh, the seed in the four different types of soil, um, um, who is he that sows the seed? Well, that was Jesus himself. Uh, and Jesus uh, made that clear in his parable. So Jesus was often in the parable. Could it be, and again, I'm not gonna say I'd die on this battlefield, but let me present something to you for your thinking. Could it be that the Samaritan is not a picture of what we should be, but the Samaritan is a picture of who Jesus is? Well, Brad, I don't know if I like that because Samaritans were sinful, wrong people, ugly. Did you know Jesus compared himself to messed up people and messed up things? Um, do you remember in Numbers, the story of the serpent that you know, Moses put on a pole and when people got bit by snakes, they were dying. But if they looked at the serpent on the pole, they'd get saved. Remember that story? You say, Brett, what does that have to do with anything? Well, as it turns out, um, you, know, uh, you know, Jesus said in John 3, 14, um, right, after the most, right before the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16, before that he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too must the son of man be lifted up that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Then John three sixteen. What did Jesus mean to compare himself to a snake on a pole? Even as that snake was put on a pole in the wilderness and people looked on it and got saved, 
I'm gonna be put up on a pole, the cross, and people are gonna to have to look to me. How could Jesus compare himself to a snake? Anybody wanna take a guess at that? Anybody? Exactly, our sin. Remember what Second uh, Corinthians 5.21 says? Exactly right. Um, he, God, who made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God. Jesus was sinless. He knew no sin. When he hung on the cross, what happened? All the sin of humanity, yours included, which is enough, just yours is plenty to be called a snake. And Christ, all your sin and all of my sin and everybody else in history's sin put on Jesus Christ. That's why that picture of the Old Testament fits perfectly Christ who is perfect. He goes from being this sweet lamb of God to being the snake on a pole. Come on, Brett, I don't know about that. That's what Jesus said, even as Moses lifted up the snake. So I don't really have a problem comparing the Samaritan to Jesus if, because of that kind of an example. But notice the attributes of the Samaritan. Um, let's, let's break it down just a little bit. Notice it says in verse 33, it says, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Do you ever read in the Bible where Jesus had compassion on people? Does that happen very often? All the time. The multitudes come and the disciples are like, get these people away. And Jesus says, ah, but I have compassion on these people. And he'd go and care for them and love on them. Um, there would be a demon-possessed guy nobody cared about. And Jesus would have compassion on him. Over and over the word. By the way, the Greek word for compassion blows away our English word compassion um, in several ways. Just pronunciation is a big one. Uh, the word is splanknidzomhei. Um, splanknidzomhei, uh, which means to be, this is great. This is, I'm reading the Greek, this is out of a Greek dictionary. I didn't make this up. To be moved as to one's bowels. Brad, did you just say bowel movement? <laughs> yes, I did. Brad, what does that have to do with compassion? Well, it, it's more the idea of a gut feeling. See, the Jews and the Hebrew Bible um, always talked about um, the deepest seat of human emotion and care was not your heart. That's just you young people on TikTok. I just feel it in my heart, you know, the heart. The, most of the time we don't talk like that. In Bible terms, you say, my gut, I have a gut feeling. It's like when you hear horrible, scary news, you feel like you've got been kicked in the gut. Um, that's what the Bible employs as the deepest seat of human emotion in your body. That's this word, splank to nadzomai. Um, which, which means to, to, to feel it in a deepest plate of your soul, place of your soul. So, so the Samaritan, he doesn't just go, well, I guess I better scoop up this naked, bloody dude, and I guess it's the right thing to do. That's not what happened. In the deepest part of his feeling, he had compassion and was moved with compassion seeing this poor dude that was messed up and wiped out. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one who does that. I'm just saying, so far, our Samaritan looks like Jesus, but notice a few other things. By the way, does Jesus bind their wounds? Is that something Jesus would do? Binding the wounds? The Bible prophesies about that. Look at verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds. Notice the next thing, pouring in oil. What is oil a type of in the Bible? Anybody remember? The Holy Spirit. And wine. Anybody want to take a stab at what wine is in the Bible? The blood of Christ. These are all pictures, types of Jesus things, binding up wounds, anointing with oil of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it's good that I'm leaving you because I'm gonna leave my Holy Spirit, which is the comforter. And then the blood is depicted in the wine. Um, it, it, I, we could go on and on with this. Notice um, 
the, the, the price he pays is uh, 50 pence or, or, you know, or two pence, $50. Um, the guy, the, guy, the half-dead guy, um, he had a debt because he was gonna stay at the inn. But did the, did the, de- the half-dead guy have any money to pay his debt? No, because he was ripped off. He didn't have any clothes, let alone a wallet. So he's broke and he can't pay his debt to stay. But Jesus paid our debt, a debt that we could not pay. He paid our debt. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. And it gets, uh, you know, in our story here, it gets, it gets even more interesting when we start looking at the rest of the characters. Um, did you notice we've got, you know, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, but notice the innkeeper comes into play here. He's called in the King James here, the host in verse 35. We'll call him the innkeeper. But notice the, the Samaritan gives care to this guy, to the innkeeper, and says, I paid his debt. And, and, and then keeping with our picture of Jesus, um, notice what the Samaritan says to the innkeeper. He says, when I come again, did Jesus ever talk about coming again? When I come again, what is he gonna do? I will repay thee. Um, I wonder if the innkeeper and the inn itself is a type of the church and the people in the church. Jesus is the one, I can't save the homeless, drug addict, insane, mentally ill person, but Jesus can. And when Jesus brings someone that needs care and someone that's really wiped out, he's the one who paid their price to be saved. Jesus did that. But then this Samaritan entrusts the innkeeper with this guy's care. And he said, by the way, when I come again, if there's any more that I, you know, in other words, you know, you'll not, I'll not owe you anything when this thing's over. I'll pay up whatever I need. Um, that sounds like what the Lord does for us. Paul was told, told the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, he said um, that, you know, you're to care for the flock, which the Lord has made you overseers, episcopos, uh, leaders in the church, um, because you're to care for them because the flock was purchased with Christ's own blood. If you're a pastor in ministry, what a sobering verse that is, that the Lord says, I'm entrusting the flock to your care. That's why pastors and churches, we need to take that role of caring for people very, very seriously. Um, you know, he, he brought him, the, the Samaritan wins in the story as the guy who did it all right. But I see this as maybe a depiction of what Jesus Christ does so beautifully. The innkeeper where the wounded people come to be healed, could that be a picture of the church? Um, I love the healing and the blessing that comes uh, uh, being a part of the church. The problem is there's a lot of people that ask questions and they, I've noticed again, these start to verge on stupid questions because they haven't really thought through them. It sounds so good. You'll hear people online or bloggers or people talk, you know, why doesn't more churches, you know, house the homeless? We've got all these big buildings like Athey Creek, a big building. And all these people without a home, why not just let them all come in here? Open the doors, unlock the doors. Why are your doors locked at midnight? I'll tell you the reason our doors are locked because we get ripped off all the time. We have meth people come on our property and steal our generators last week. Um, that happens all the time. We have security, cameras. We've shown the police license plates and face pictures. And they're like, oh, we know that guy. Yeah, he's a meth addict and we know who he is, but we really can't do anything about this. Um, uh, well, you know, we'll try to find your generator somewhere on Craigslist. Like that's what's happening right now. It's just nothing. Um, so you're saying, Brett, if we, why don't we just open our doors? Because that would be crazy. That'd be really stupid. 
We would open our doors if there was some catastrophic event or something around here. We'd love to share. We do share our building when there's people that need stuff. We've done that a bunch of times. It's just that the homeless thing, if you bring that in, you're gonna have drug deals going on, prostitution, you're gonna have all kinds of mayhem. And mentally ill, we're not really equipped really to deal with mentally ill here at this building. I don't think the neighbors would appreciate it. And I also don't think we've been approved by the county to be a homeless shelter. Uh, Like it's so funny, the ignorance of people that say, why don't the church acting like we're so horrible because we didn't do that. But can I give you the real answer? The answer is churches, even churches I don't agree with, Uh, theologically. But it's amazing to me, churches do all sorts of things to help all sorts of people all the time. As a rule, churches are really, really good at helping people. There's this false narrative that we just, at Westland or Athey Creek, we just sit here and go to church with all of our cars and come in here and, oh, that's part of what we do. But we also spend a lot of time helping people that are hurting. We help old ladies move. We pay bills for people that lost their job and have a season where they're going down and hurting. We do that by the thousands of people. We help people by the thousands. And it's because this church is big hearted and benevolent and giving and the tithes and offerings goes to helping people all the time. Why don't you tell us about that more, Brett? Why don't you announce it to the world? Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. We don't go around tooting our horn. Are you doing it today, Brett? Well, no, I'm, I'm actually trying to explain that you know churches do better than just about anybody else on helping homeless. We already established the government's not really helping at all with homeless and sick and hurting, drug addiction and mental illness. But I'd say the church is doing a lot better. And when people come and ask me that face-to-face, oftentimes, you know, because I know what we do and I can defend it, I'm tempted to say to a person, why doesn't Athey Creek do this? And sometimes I just want to say, I like what Athey Creek and what I'm doing here at Athey Creek, I like what we're doing more than what you're not doing. People that complain about that often are the very same people who have done nothing to help the homeless or care at all, Uh, but they have this sort of sanctimonious view. Um, I believe that the church of Jesus Christ, um, one of the things people make a mistake is they forget what our number one mission is, by the way. Um, did G- what was Jesus' number, number one mission? Did Jesus come to help the homeless? Is that why he came? Did Jesus come to heal the sick? Is that why he came? Well, if you know the Bible, that's not why he came. But Brody did that. What I would say is, Jesus came to do something very specific. And then as he was doing that job, if a homeless person or a sick person came, he would lovingly help them and heal them and work on them. But that wasn't his main objective. Check it out, Luke 19, 10. For the son of man has come to seek and save that which is lost. Um, What does that mean? Well, you know, it's 1 Timothy 1, 15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The number one job that we've been given by Jesus is the same job he came to do. He says, go into all the world and preach how to help the homeless. That's not what he said. How to deal with drug addiction? Nope. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, as we're preaching the gospel, we could be wrongly just religionists preaching the gospel without love. Without love, they don't know you're my disciples. So you do have to love. So as we go preaching the gospel, when people come in our path, when people come to this church and need help or asking for help, man, we're gonna do our best to help. We've made the mistake, by the way, of trying to go out and help people just 
you know, homeless or for years, we brought a giant cooker down under the Burnside Bridge and we cooked up food and coffee and handed out Bibles and prayed with people. And we were trying to do that. But you know, after years of doing that, do you wanna know how many people we really think we helped? Zero. Like the fruit of that was so bad. It was almost like we felt like we were enabling them to continue to do their drugs and their homelessness. And we're just giving them another meal to give them another day to, 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 you know. And if we brought the scriptures or the Bible or the gospel, they would say, get out of our town. We don't want you, you know, we want nothing to do. Like they didn't want to hear from us. And when Jesus bumped into that, how did Jesus respond? He left them alone and went his way. So Athey Creek's not about going downtown and doing all that stuff, but man, if you show me a homeless person who's saying, I need help, we'll be the first church to be there and, and do whatever we can. We'll help, number one, the gospel. You gotta repent and be saved. And everything else that comes after that, we're willing to help. And we do, and that's important. I close, however, we look at this list and you might say, well, who is this? Who, who are you in this story? You might be the religionist, uh, uh, the Levite or the political person, the priest, and you really don't care about anybody who's hurting, that's a problem. Shouldn't do that, gotta repent. The goal might be, we need to be like the Samaritan, which in a way is, I would argue, is to say, we need to be more like Jesus. Yes, that's good. But I also wanna say that one of the things, if you're part of the, the church of Jesus Christ, we might be better pictured by the innkeeper. And when Christ comes again, he's gonna reward us for how we did caring for the hurt, hurting and the homeless and the orphans and the widows. And how, how did we do with that? And what is your role in that? That might be something to ask. But there's one final character that we haven't really put on this list that I'm gonna put on here. Number five, the half dead guy. He, I haven't listed him here, but he's an important guy too. Um, now let's, let's conclude with this thought. What did the half-dead guy do in the story? Anybody? Nothing. Uh, well, he got robbed. <laughs> he got beat up and robbed and left for dead. And he became the half-dead guy. But after that, what did he do? Zip. And see, the, the thing I wanna say is some of you in this room maybe or watching online, you're the half-dead guy. Your life is messed up, you've sinned, you're, you've ended up bloody and barren and wiped out and you, your life's miserable. It's like the welder that came into my office that day and said, what do I need to do to become a Christian? He was the half dead guy. His life was really in a bad place and he finally realized he needed help. And so what does a person do to help themselves? Well, this is a great story that reminds you, you can't help yourself, you're beyond help, you're half dead. But good news, a better than good Samaritan wants to scoop you up pay your price, which you can't pay. Your price for your sin is death and hell eternal. Jesus said, I'll pay your price. And, and then, then he'll say, and when you become a believer, you come in and be part of the church and the church are gonna come alongside you and, and help you. And we wanna build you up in faith. Uh, and, and it's like a family within a family to be part of the church. Um, the half dead guy does nothing, but he gets saved. And how is a person saved? By God's grace through faith. Nothing of your works, nothing of yourselves. It's a gift from God. And I would encourage you, if you're the half dead guy, maybe your life, you're, you realize, man, I'm a sinner. I fall short. What do you do? Right now, right here, you can say, Lord, forgive me for my sins. Repent. That means just to say, Lord, I acknowledge my sin before you. Repent of your sins and then accept Jesus. Say, Lord, I, I take the gift. Um, and I received that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, that he rose up from the grave, and that I'm saved. It's nothing you do to earn it. 
That's the beauty of the gospel. Um, that's why Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. 